Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. I'm your host, Nav C. And I'm your host, Nav M. Welcome to another hour of Alternative Views. This show will help you rethink, reshape, and reform ongoing narratives. The term Diana events refers to the sequence of events describing the death of Princess Diana in the car in which she was traveling as it plowed into the wall of a Paris underpass in the early hours of 31st August 1997. And of the vehicle's four occupants, Diana, Dodi Alfayed, and the chauffeur Henri Paul, who were all killed, only one survivor came out of this alive, and that was the bodyguard Trevor Reese Jones. So in this episode, we explore various aspects of the widespread public mourning which subsequently followed her death, in particular the various processes which gave rise to an overwhelming outpouring of public grief, both in Britain and globally. We first explore the historical shifts in Western attitudes towards death and dying, which spanned a period of roughly one century between mid-19th and 20th century. And then we'll examine the claim that Western societies are death-denying societies by entertaining the paradox of denial and revival of death. We also establish a distinction between the public and private mourning before viewing these concepts through the lens of the Diana events. And we then proceed to tackle a range of issues in relation to the constructs of mourning. And chief among these is challenging the underlying myth of the public mourning account after Diana's death. And we suggest that far from being united in grief, popular attitudes were in fact deeply divided across a variety of themes. And further areas of examination include whether the public mourning for Diana was mediatized, uh, as in uh, through the system of mass media. And we also consider the viewpoint of Diana as an icon and, and the loss of symbolic investment. But first, let's start with a brief synopsis of the Diana events. In the week of public mourning, which followed the Diana events, the routine lives of many everyday people suddenly ground to a halt. In Britain, television and radio schedules were virtually suspended, and most networks switched to a reflective mode of national emergency, while workplace and everyday conversation was dominated by the unfolding social drama surrounding Diana's death. And the main sequence of events focused on the following points. Firstly, the royal family's seemingly lack of an appropriate or emotional response to the crisis. The lack of empathy displayed by key members of the royal family was seen as being out of step with public mood and the nation at large. And as the week wore on, pressure increased upon the royal family to return to London and cut short their summer vacation at the Queen's country estate of Balmoral in Scotland. 
Demands were also made for the Royal Standard to be flown at half-mast over Buckingham Palace. But above all, the Diana events were marked by an extraordinary show of public grief in which a wide range of people from all ages, classes and ethnic backgrounds came together in a show of emotional support and as a mark of solidarity and respect. The main public spaces being occupied were the gardens and gates surrounding royal residences in central London, such as Kensington Palace, which was the former residence of Princess Diana. And according to some reports, the multitude of mourners had brought flowers estimated to be between 10 and 15,000 tons. And finally, people queued for several hours to sign books of condolence and brought gifts and personal mementos which were placed at key sites across London and rapidly became personal shrines to Princess Diana. So given the unique sequence of events, let's begin our analysis by addressing the first question regarding the overwhelming grief of the occasion. And at this point, I'll hand over to Navsi who will begin her piece. Thank you, Navim. So how can we explain the mass outpouring of grief which occurred during the Diana events? Public mourning of the sort described here is usually explained or justified through the presence of Diana's iconic status in relation to feminine structures of empathy. As vast swathes of the nation articulated their grief for Princess Diana. Hence the public mourning which followed the event itself is considered to be something greater than grief, the grieving process, because it references something other than the experience lost. What we observe is a almost paradoxical situation because there exists an absence of interest in the death itself, in in this case, during the global outpouring of grief, which is then juxtaposed against the concept of universality of death as a social experience. It's the public's mourning which follows such prominent events which has led researchers working within this field of study to establish historical shifts in predominantly Western attitudes toward death and dying. Here we refer to wider society's unique perspective on the topic of death, spanning a period of roughly one century between the mid-19th and 20th century. It can be summed up using the statement of the 17th century French writer Rochefoucauld that death, much like the sun, cannot be looked at directly. It can be argued this was a very shared by many of the people's of the people engaged in the mourning process of the Diana events, whether they were physically present or watching events unfold on their television sets. Because paradoxically, the grieving process was essentially a surrogate for the denial of Diana's death. This is something which we will explain in the next section by reviewing the paradox of the denial and the revival of death. But let's begin by examining the calm that Western societies are death-denying societies. Uh, Sorry, the claim. The idea of Western societies as death-denying societies represents something approaching conventional wisdom among academic circles since the publication of Jeffrey Gora's essay in 1955 entitled The Pornography of Death. And it was one of the first attempts to view death denial from a historical and sociological perspective. 
perspective. Gorer argued that death has replaced sex in contemporary society as the great unmentionable. He compares the social taboos surrounding sex in the Victorian period with those surrounding death in the mid-20th century. Gorer exclaimed, claimed that the existence of a repressed sexuality during the Victorian era helped to create a pornography of sex, whereas taboos surrounding death in the middle 20th century also helped to create a pornography of death within the Western Hemisphere. His book gained notoriety through the 1960s and the 70s, and its appeal was further strengthened by the publication in 1973 of Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death. Becker argued that death denial is an important survival mechanism and that it helps us withstand the terror of death. He believed that the development of culture and civilization were human strategies to minimize the fear of death. His analysis drew attention to death denial as an important feature of its time. Another famous historian, essayist, Philippe Eris also described the radical change in attitudes to death in the 20th century. In The Hour of Our Death, published in 1977, Eris studied attitudes to death in Western society from the medieval period to the 1970s, stating that mass society had revolted against death, denying its very existence. In previous ages, rituals and rites surrounding the death were a habitual part of everyday life. Indeed, according to Arez, it was rituals which helped to tame death, whereas modern society tries to silence it. He claimed that North American society in particular had become a death-denying society and suggested that death arouses fear in us to the point that we no longer dare to call it by its name. Similarly, Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, supported this view by suggesting that we have shown an unmistakable tendency to eliminate all thought of death from everyday life. Similarly, sociologist Norbert Elias noted, in circumstances where the presence of death and dying, people has become a source of embarrassment for the living the task of finding the right words and right gestures has increasingly fallen upon the shoulders of the individual. He stated further, never before have the dying been removed so hygienically behind the scenes of social life. Never have human corpses been ex expedited so orderlessly and with such technical perfection from deathbed to the grave. Others, too, have documented the gradual removal of death from public space. Now allocated to the sphere of hospitals and clinical medicine, and especially within the cemetery. In 1976, Jean Baudrillard referred to cemeteries as the first ghettos due to the act of packing people into one homogeneous space. To recap thus far, we've established an important distinction between public and private space in relation to death and dying. This leads us to the next concept, which is how the process of death has become privatized, or more appropriately, the privatization of death. Within the realms of modernity, where death is viewed as meaningless, it's done so with a sense of incredulity in which and which is typically referred to as bad death. 
invest in death dying societies bad death typically occur in the prime of a person's life in tragic or violent circumstances and the bad death is seen to complicate the process of mourning by shattering the expectations and assumptions of the bereaved as well as heightening the sense of insecurity and disrupting the order in society as such the spontaneous memorialization seen in the aftermath of princess diana's death can be viewed as the public's reaction to anticipated violent deaths of people who do not fit in the categories of those expected to die so both the unexpected and violent death of princess diana in the prime of her life at the age of 36 is presented as a scenario of death denials and remains in sharp contrast to earlier periods of history where according to Philippe Erez death was familiar close and softened death was viewed as a more persuasive process for all age groups it was it was a more open and familiar experience and much less remote than it is today it was discussed more openly frequently and was more popular in the literature of the time what we observe is western attitudes to death changed from its acceptance as a universal reality within the public domain to to the victorian period where the dead were routinely excluded from the world of world of the living essentially death was confined to spaces which are essentially private in nature what was once viewed as a common public spectacle became a set of formal practices surrounding funeral ritual so we determined that this dual pattern of presence and absence of death has transcended various ages of western society in the public sphere and also confined to spaces which are routinely hidden from public view now this brings us neatly to the next area of discussion which is the revival of public mourning Some commentators have suggested that public mourning from Princess Diana in 1977 marked a revival in the process of public mourning. Ever since the massive loss of life followed the end of the First World War, the, the surplus of the dead was so overwhelming that communal mourning was no longer seemed to make to make sense, leading to the withdrawal of public mourning rituals throughout Europe. This partly explains Jeffrey Gore's earlier observation that we have forgotten how to grieve and have to relearn the practice of public mourning and condolences. In comparison, pre-modern attempts to cheat death were done so in a privately private capacity to achieve a sense of immortal immortality by those who were able to achieve lasting notoriety through the words or deeds. Whereas in post-modernity the area of celebrity has been democratized such that any individual regardless of social standing can stake their claim to 15 minutes of fame as stated by Andy Warhol the death of princess diana proves a useful starting point in helping to reestablish the concept of public mourning but at the same time there is a certain oddity about the diana events in particular the public mourning for a person with whom the vast majority of mourners had never met yet paradoxically this perceived oddity can be explained in a different light by arguing that the diana events were both an extraordinary and quite normal event after all 
For instance, in the earlier periods of Western history and in many other societies, people are expected to join the mourning for the loss of a member of the community, regardless of personal know-how with the deceased. It's a timely reminder that in early modern England, the lord of the manor would often pay local paupers to attend the funeral for fear that no one else would be present. And this idea of expectation is a recurring theme throughout the remainder of today's episode, especially in relation to the rules of death or making people obey rules of behavior surrounding death. Now, in the case of public mourning, which followed the Diana events, we can now ask, is it possible that there is a disproportionate emphasis on the individual, on the individual mourners, not as an extension of the loss, but due to normative pressures, i.e. to act in a certain way in line with the wider social group of which they are a part? Is it the custom emotions which accompany grief, which are thought to be external norms guiding the sentiment of individuals as well as the procedures on how they may be used? Now, in this context, public mourning is not a natural reaction of private feelings from a severe loss, but as a duty imposed by a wider group. One weeps not because one is sad, but because one is forced to weep. It is a ritual attitude which once which one is forced to adopt out of respect for custom and is something which exists across various societies around the world. This can be illustrated by referencing Tony Walter's 1999 book, The Mourning for Diana, in which he gives an account of the bereavement and mourning for Princess Diana. Here, Walter points out that those sitting down to write in the books of condolences did so with no clear idea what to write. They would scan the previous few entries and write their own variation of that page emerging theme. At Buckingham Palace on the first Sunday, one could observe people wandering about, wondering what to do. They watched other people's people laying flowers, shrieking, quietly contemplating, hugging their partner and thus learning what was acceptable. This was behavior that people constructed together by watching each other, learning from each other. It was genuinely social behavior. Sigmund Freud was an early exponent of the effects of grief and his ideas are useful on a number of points. In particular, he used the term melancholy as the process of mourning gone wrong. In Freud's view, mourning is the attempt to withdraw or disinvest the meaning in objects, but especially people. Emerging from the profound state of emotional distress, the mourner unconsciously refuses to acknowledge the loss by clinging desperately to all memory of the lost object. And it is this inability of the mourner to get over and move on from the profound situation of loss which forms the symptoms of melancholy. Jeffrey Gorer described this as the mummification of the dead. In this context, the social practice of mummification seeks to entomb the memory of the deceased by preserving intact their possessions and by turning the space which they previously occupied into a shrine. Gorer provided an example of the behavior of Queen Victoria and her prolonged mourning for Prince Albert as the most notorious 
notorious example from, of mummification as evidence both for her general demeanor and withdrawal from public engagements. Also, her continued use of mourning wear across, uh, even after Albert's death. Queen Victoria famously continued a northern practice long after Prince Albert's death, which was to have his shaving water brought in and his clothes laid out daily. Now that we have a basic understanding of the concept of public and private mourning within the context of death-denying societies, we can move forward to the postmodern era and view this concept through the lens of the Diana effect. Now in the section, we'll tackle a range of issues in relation to the constructs of mourning, and this will inevitably raise the further questions. But overall, we, can, we will make an attempt to address three main areas. Firstly, what do we mean by public mourning and how is it interpreted? What distinguishes public from private mourning? And lastly, what role does culture play in public mourning? At this point, I will hand over to Nav M, who will provide an analysis of a range of issues in relation to the constructs of mourning. Thank you, Nefsi, for those excellent insights. So let's continue <clears throat> with the themes that we've discussed by firstly focusing on the postmodernizing of the death ritual. And even before the death of Princess Diana, many social scientists had already been working within the field of death studies for quite some time. In particular, we referenced Tony Walter, the Emeritus Professor of Death Studies at the University of Bath in the UK. And in addition to Walter, other social commentators and, and journalists had already begun to reflect upon two main themes. Firstly, changes affecting the public commemoration of tragedy and the ways in which the death of public figures were marked. And secondly, the private ceremonial practices used to mark the passing of life, i.e. funerary practices usually restricted to friends and family of the deceased. And there's been an increased tendency for the bereaved to want to customise funeral ceremonies following the direct wishes of the deceased in which instructions are left behind on how to personalize funeral proceedings. And sociologists had begun to note the increased desire of the bereaved to assume greater control over the, these funerary practices. And these attempts to assert control over funeral proceedings, especially pre-burial, have occurred largely at the expense of organized religion, which traditionally arranged many of the rites surrounding a person's departure from this world since medieval times. And the growth in the professional status of, of death services has effectively undermined the participation of the bereaved themselves in the professionalization has been viewed as an attempt to disenfranchise individuals from taking an active role both in one's own death and that of others. And now it should be noted that the pressure for a, a greater individual choice over funeral arrangements and this, this trend that we discussed towards uh, more expression was given the greatest boost during the 1980s by the gay community and those dying with the AIDS epidemic. And it was largely due to the discrimination and ostracization faced by gay people in general and the condemnation of gay lifestyles. So the next area we focus on is can the, di uh, the, can the Diane events be viewed as a 
carnivalization of death. So we should first make a distinction that the term carnivalesque is a notion described by the literary critic Mikhail Bakhtin. And it was Bakhtin's theory of carnivalization which focused on the concept of focused on the concept of death and how spectacularization serves to break social rules. For example, those used during a carnival. And the public mourning scenes which followed the death of Princess Diana are in many ways the defining point or benchmark against which all other public mourning events are now considered by news media organizations. And her death witnessed an unprecedented use of soft toys, flowers and personal memorabilia in the creation of spontaneous shrines to Diana. And global viewing audiences witnessed a complete revision of funerary protocol in which established practices were ruthlessly undone. Examples which come to mind are Earl Spencer's eulogy to launch a careful worded attack on the Windsors whilst providing a robust defence of his late sister. Other instances which signalled a break with established tradition include the spontaneous and uh, unprecedented applause which was... Uh, seen as a response to Earl, response, uh, Earl Spencer's funerary address. Also, the, the performance during Diana's funeral service of Elton John's Candle in the Wind, the inclusion of traditional and deeply conservative aspects of her funeral, such as the use of a, a military gun carriage uh, to carry her body, uh, flowers thrown by roadside mourners which landed accidentally on the hearse which had never been done before and the unprecedented public demands that the royal standard flown over Buckingham Palace should be lowered to half-mast and in this section we have provided examples where the spectacularization of death breaks social norms in acceptable spaces and by exploring the violation of taboo through media, society is then given a legitimate outlet for taboo violation. So we're just coming up to a short break night right now, so there'll be much more to come in the next segment. We'll see you shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On CIO Talk Radio, we talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its risks. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, Sunjo Gall interviews business leaders and other experts that are shaping the way we use technology. To learn more about this show, visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Keep up with the changing world of technology and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. Are you looking for a fun yet informative program about health care for your pet? Check out Awesome Woo Woo Holistic Vet Advice with Dr. Jim and Kristen Carlson. They look into natural health alternatives for ourselves, so why not our pets? This program provides the most up-to-date, accurate, and innovative information about traditional and holistic veterinary medicine. You'll find a ton of answers regarding your pet's health every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. 
Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Your pets play a major role in your life. After all, they're as much a member of the family as anybody else. Now there's a show that will show you how to keep them healthy and living their life to the fullest. Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'll talk about veterinary health and help you understand the wellness and treatment plans that you need to know about your best friend. Listen every Wednesday to Healthy Tales at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Calendar with Nav and Nav. It's great to have your company. So in the next area of examination, we'll focus on Diana as an icon and the loss of symbolic investment. And by de- definition, an icon is a visual representation of something else, and it can represent a person, place, or idea, among other things. And similarly, the word iconicity refers to the the similarity between a symbol and what it stands for. So it's possible for icons to possess iconicity if they are similar in some way to what they're actually trying to represent. Also, researchers have argued that Princess Diana embodied iconicity because there's a link between her persona and the multiple and often subjective identities that she manifested. Hence, Diana's cultural position was unique because it extended beyond the filtering gaps between role of icon and iconicity. In other words, it went beyond the intersection of cultural image and her personal effect over various societies. And it's this combination of icon and iconicity in the iconographic Diana which enabled this multicultural assembly of mourners to assemble um, and which so occupied journalists and and academics during that period of time. And journalists commented on the unusually multicultural rainbow composition of mourners during public proceedings, which surrounded her death. Also, cultural commentators were vocal about the constituency of the rejected as described by Earl Spencer in 1997. And this referred to the ranks of marginalized people, each of whom were able to recognize and identify themselves with various aspects of her life, from gay men to the homeless, single mothers to hospitalized individuals. And this reflected the way in which Diana was able to call upon the support of disenfranchised social groups from the margins of society while still retaining her core support within society. 
And this discussion on the subtle overlap between icon and iconicity provides a pretext for our next area of examination, which is the mourning for Diana as a purely media, uh, mediatized event. And one of the most striking features of the public mourning events was the, the visual effect in terms of public spectacle and mediatized event on a grand scale. The very nature of the event itself is almost inconceivable without the vast media presence which reported and elevated the occasion. And many within the field of media and communication studies have extended Marshall McLuhan's theory that the medium becomes the message by suggesting that a large televised funeral is nothing more than a media spectacle and, and that Diana herself was a highly sought after media image. And while there is ground for this argument, given Diana's manipulation of the media for her own ends, it's a view which must also be balanced against Diana's charity activism and especially her recognition of the abject other. And also, we have to consider the testimonies of those who met Diana personally, who suggested that her charitable causes extended well beyond the confines of Victorian philanthropy and, and the sense of duty. And while Princess Diana's image was carefully mediated, there's no doubt about that, this does not make any less real or lessen her impact upon the lives of the people who she touched most intimately. And it was media theorist Jean Boudrillard who introduced the phrase, the dissolution of TV into life, the dissolution of life into TV. And this phrase is instructive because as the morning for Princess Diana developed, it became increasingly difficult to distinguish each event from the media representation. In other words, the media simulation of events and the subsequent morning have long since become synonymous with, with each other. So the media reporting of the events became the event and the only means by which we have come to know the series of events through their mediatization. And this viewpoint raises some key points. Firstly, a mark of the scale of global mediatization of these events was the moment of inception. And what we mean by that is for millions of people around the world, it, it came via the television image. In other words, people were cognizant of the precise moment of their whereabouts at the time the news of Diana's death broke. The Diana events provide a reference point for which we narrate our own lives, our own personal history of where we were and what we were doing. And secondly, for commentators critical of the highly visible public mourning for Princess Diana, it was the event's media reporting which magnified and falsely exaggerated its scale and significance. While for others, the events were not determined by the media, but by the people themselves, because the media struggled to keep abreast of the public mourning for Diana. And furthermore, various other journalists and broadcasters in the days and weeks after Diana's death suggested that the seemingly unprecedented public mourning was the result of an outright media manipulation using grief as a, as a media tool. And, and these points that we've discussed share a lot of commonality with, with the next area of, of examination, which is how the Diana events represented a grotesque inversion of tradition. Argu arguably the 
the public mourning following the death of Princess Diana can be viewed as an extraordinary public spectacle. And spectacular media events due to the visible elements of drama and theatre involved. So for pure drama at the funeral, we only have to look at Earl Spencer's electrifying funeral address. And also we're reminded of the power struggle which ensued between the Windsors and the public at large, of the demands that the monarchy respect the feelings of the people by returning to London to show everyone they cared. And this raises a, a very important question. Is there a public and private within mediated mourning? And thus far, we've referred to aspects of the Diana events as public mourning. But what we see is that the ensuing events can also challenge concepts of public and private as, as they are understood in an ordinary context. Because as media events, many millions of people worldwide were deeply moved by her death, but still mourned the event without leaving flowers or signing condolence books or indeed leaving the confines of their home. And firstly, the, the Diane events were public events in the sense that there were multitudes of mourners occupying public space, the ways in which the mourning was participated openly by, by large swathes of the population, not restricted to the immediate family. There was also, it was also very public by virtue of the fact that they were mediated events made available to a global TV, TV audience. So what we see are, these are examples of social public expression of what are essentially very private emotions. But nevertheless, each event contained aspects of the private as well. For instance, let's consider the most intensely personal aspects of these events, such as the ceremonial practices which commit the body of the deceased to the earth and thereby accepting a finality of loss. And these were very private moments restricted to the friends and family of the deceased. And as we know, Diana was buried in a private ceremony on a small island lake on the Althorpe country estate where she grew up. So this can be viewed as a, a social private moment as, a, as opposed to a social public moment. And the interplay between public and private space provides the perfect backdrop for our next area of examination, which is areas of fandom and public mourning. The public mourning events comprise aspects of the psychological private, shedding light on the private realm of Diana's lives. So it can be argued that fandom erodes distinctions between public and private, yet still upholds the concept of celebrity. For instance, the iconic fandom of Princess Diana is based on, on a symbolic investment by each and every fan in which hopes and fears of the fan are projected onto the celebrity as a blank screen. And this process both transcends and is based upon notions of public and private. And we see the aura of mystery and fantasy which sustains this relationship and is premised upon the quest for more information about the private life of Diana, with whom the fans uh, sought to establish a relationship. And despite being denied full access to Diana's private or unmediated life, fandom still involves a compartmentalizing of a large share of an individual self-identity. 
And according to social theorist Anthony Elliott, the relationship between fan and celebrity is troubled precisely because there exists a certain violence which is built into it from the beginning. Fandom contains an obsessive quality by virtue of the fans' attempt to lose a part of themselves to the distant other. And this sense of violence is intrinsic to Diana's iconic status because her celebrity value uniquely precipitated an asymmetric relationship between herself and her admirers. And in Diana's case, fans could be represented by the media, the general public, and private admirers. And this imbalanced relationship was magnified due to the lack of exchange between fan and celebrity. So in the next area of examination, we review the nature of iconic public mourning. The death of Princess Diana offered an interesting glimpse into the range of cultural and political values being mourned through acts of mourning, as well as through not mourning. And some academics have suggested that various other cultural and political losses were being mourned by those people her death. Many commentators in the aftermath of Diana's death angrily denounced the public mourning by heaping scorn on this feeling frenzy and the torrent of sentimentality which appeared to have consumed the normally reserved British public. And while journalists and academics of the political left condemned the mourning for Diana as an irrelevant distraction from the important issues of the day. Elsewhere, sections of the liberal hierarchy derided the soap opera style of events and challenged the authenticity of people's grief by suggesting it was feigned rather than self-reduced. And there is a much deeper suggestion that the contempt which is indicative of powerful and contradictory feelings associated with mourning and, and that's that many objecting journalists believe that the focus of the morning was not the range of possibilities which Diana seemed to embody, but rather it was the loss of something else, political values, realities and cultural ideals heralded by this very, very short and uh, intense series of events. So clearly we see there are differing accounts from opposite ends of the journalistic spectrum which created a binary split between left and right, between those who encouraged her idealist, idealistic style and others who were scornful of her iconic status. So in the previous section, we, we've covered the complexities between public and private mourning, and it reminds us of the, the chasm of difference between how grief is portrayed in the public sphere. And if mourning is to be be conceived as a social effort that binds communities together, then it's worth questioning the intersections of the private and the public when it comes to trauma, loss and mourning, because these ideas challenge our very notions of the individual and the shared. For instance, how is community mourning to be understood and with what justification do we consider a particular social or cultural practice to be mourning? as a definition and these are all ideas which we take forward in our in our next area of examination by focusing on an earlier point whether mourning actually binds social communities so the questions raised are as follows can diane's mourning be described as a truly homogenous myth and the image presented is of a nation united in grief over the death of their People's Princess, the popular reaction which was first provided by Prime Minister Tony Blair. 
And the British media were usually united in amplifying this story during the extraordinary week. The tabloid famously printed a photograph of a distraught man with a Mohican haircut laying a huge wreath, aided by persuasive headlines such as From Punk to Pensioner, Grief Knew No Barrier. This was taken from the Daily Mail, 3rd of September, 97. And in the more sophisticated broadsheets, the view was no different. Reports stated that the extraordinary popular reaction was proof of Diana's prized political entity, a rainbow coalition of diverse groups. But what we see is that television coverage presented an image of uniform grief and cameras continually focused on weeping faces and juxtaposed them with shots of huge crowds. And the aim was to convey the impression that there was a collective response on on behalf of the vast population. So the second area is, was it a new sense of community? In the aftermath of Diana's death, some journalists began speculating whether the events reversed a sense of national fragmentation by stressing the importance of commonality across boundaries such as race, age and gender. And this was accompanied by the emergence of a brief period of bonding which temporarily removed social hierarchies. So the, the third area is this myth of mass hysteria, and this leads up to a, a further line of inquiry. So given all the emphasis on the people and, and the, uh, the mass hysteria that we've discussed, one of the most puzzling oversights is the complete failure by journalists or scholars to offer any detailed empirical studies of this, this uh, hugely popular reaction which was on display in September 97. And clearly those that did not mourn were an important part of the overall picture and must also be included with any impartial assessment of the Diana event. And usually in any study of popular mood, the first approach is to consult opinion polls. Yet strangely, one puzzling aspect of this week's events is that there were no public, there were no popular opinion polls reflecting the main story and no poll can be found which was commissioned by the media. Instead, the media focus on an apparent, um, apparently historically upset minority of mourners rather than a, major, uh, a majority quietly in control of their emotions. And interestingly, what we see is the one mourner in tears made for a much better story than the 99 that did not. So let's look at this myth of a people's princess. The following responses were obtained from a qualitative s- study of popular attitudes undertaken by Mass Observation Archive, or MOA, during this week known as the Diana events. And this study was employed in a research paper published by James Thomas, a research associate at the Cardiff School of Media and Journalism. And Thomas argues that while the media claim to report overwhelmingly positive attitudes, to one woman, this, this, is, this was how it was, uh, the headline appeared. Born a lady, became a princess, died a saint, a headline from the Daily Mirror on the 1st of September. But in contrast, mass observation correspondents offered a vastly complex and diverse opinion. Some of the correspondents reported a mixture of praise temp- tempered with indifference and hostility. One of the most common positive sentiments was, 
of a woman who had the common touch or who was natural with people and who did not distance herself like the other members of the royal family. Another correspondent stated, as to the good Diana did, yes, maybe, but many others also slog away working in the slums, hospitals or war, war zones. And she didn't have to negotiate or painstakingly work out methods to relieve suffering. Then at the end of the day, she could return to luxury, holidays and nannies, etc. So from these perspectives, Diana's one of us story would definitely require further scrutiny because of the contradictions of attitudes on display. and correspondence conveyed a complex mixture of positive and negative views about her charity work and her relationship with the royal family. And many of the correspondents completely disagreed with Diana's saintliness, which was being promoted uh, through the press and many of the mourners. So let's look at uh, um, the next area, which is were we witness to uh, a pure women's uh, event in other words was it women's mourning while it's true that attitudes to diana cut across political boundaries as royalists found themselves united with republicans on both mourning and non-mourning sides a more traditional difference in attitudes emerged among gender lines and that was that women were much keener to voice their opinions in, in response to the survey 56% of women as opposed to 49% of males and such a gender divide did not go unnoticed by some of the correspondents who saw men uh, by and large they were bemused by the strength of feeling expressed or sorry but not upset as, as women were and one woman around the same age of Diana outlined, like most of the country, I wanted to know her. I felt I did know her because of her ability to inspire you, to touch, to empathize with you. She, she reached millions of people, including me, in millions of ways. And I think each person felt it personally to them, the way she reached out to them. And what we see is that this intense level of personal identification was, however, far less visible among men. And it reveals that women outnumbered men by up to four to one at mourning sites and written tributes. And given that women showed more interest in Diana's life, it's hardly surprising that this was repeated uh, um, uh, through the events. And also, we, we know that women grieve more openly than men. And more to the point, women had more affinity with her mar marital difficulties, her depression, eating disorder and attempted suicides, which were problems far more common among women than men. So from what we've gathered, was it really true grieving? And the media coverage which followed Diana's death focused intensely on what was claimed as the very depths of the people's grief. One journalist referred to what he called private grief multiplied millions of times and everybody I've spoken to feels personally bereaved as if a close relation has died and this position has been supported albeit in qualified form by academics who suggested that the grief felt was real even if it was less painful than personal loss and Many of the mass uh, uh, observer correspondents reported a deep distress and pain which they compared to personal bereavement. And one correspondent said that, like a lot of people, I felt that I had lost a close member of my family. 
but clearly the identification which people made with Diana's life helped explain that these sentiments, as did the shock of her death. And even for those with no admiration, the news sometimes triggered grief from one's past. As one woman noted, what you hear again and again, both on the media and firsthand, is how people felt that they knew Princess Diana. She was my friend. But a point made often by non-members was the puzzling nature of feelings for a stranger. As, a, as an 18-year-old female stated, I at least couldn't really mourn for someone I didn't know. And while Diana's death acted as a trigger for grieving past losses, amongst others, it, it was it actually created resentment at the two opposing views. And one man stated very, very succinctly that, can it be, I now ask, that the national, even international grief brought about by the death of Diana can be anything comparable to the personal grief felt by most of us sooner or later. A mass outpouring of grief for a person that 99% of the population had never even met is to be deplored, for it is not true grief. And these last comments shed light on the way the morning gave dramatic focus to a contemporary cultural battle between people who believe in the traditional English stiff upper lip of private grief and expressivists who believe in the need to discuss their problems. So from the above accounts, it's abundantly clear that the country was far from being united in grief. On the contrary, opinions were both divided and polarized across a range of themes, but also there was a composition of complex and contrary, contradictory responses. So let's briefly look at the final area of uh, examination, the issue of dissent. By and large, what we see is that the mass media opted for favorable sentiments during the diner events, which were disproportionately prioritized, while unflattering or even mixed opinions were, were largely silenced. And one skeptic referred to a comment from her window cleaner about a very sad, sad week. And she noted that I was even more careful not to state the views I had, as I certainly did not want to offend anyone who felt strongly about it. So let's wrap up with some final remarks. By examining the collective evidence offered by mass observation correspondence during the week following the death of Princess Diana, we've seen that it's highly plausible to challenge the underlying myth that public mourning had indeed reached a point of mass hysteria. And it's also fair to say that far from being united in grief, popular attitudes were in fact deeply divided across a variety of themes. Secondly, attitudes to Diana, grief, mourning, nationalism and media coverage were key areas of division amongst correspondents. The evidence from mass observation suggests a more complex, diverse and contradictory picture of popular attitude, which explains not only how and why some people mourn, but also why and how others did not mourn. Also, death is an unknown quantity and is expected to be a very somber event. And it's through the process of carnivalization that we discussed earlier that norms are broken, standards are reversed. In, other, in order to resist the values that society has set in place, perhaps this is what actually happened during the period of public and private mourning, during the Diana events, in that controls and repressions were released in a frenzy of mournful celebration. And perhaps the media were indeed outlets for taboo breaking and if the transgression was to celebrate the life and death of a unique 
individual, then the point of resistance has already been passed and been upheld by wider society. But in doing so, the real question is this, have we upheld a myth of compassion where Diana represents endless possibilities for individuals to identify with her brand of empathy? Or is it something much more sinister, a myth of violence which has revived a macabre cult of death dressed in contemporary social rituals? So that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. We really appreciate your company today. And if you have any feedback on today's com- uh, on the issues that we've discussed, please email us at info at gmc-radio.com. And as always, please like, share and comment. Connect via our social channels. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. See you then. Take Thanks care. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join Nav C and Nav M for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.